Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey guys, welcome to The Bustle Huddle. I'm your host, Jada Gomez, and today's episode is all about work, 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 work. Shouts to our queen, Rihanna. Work can be as anxiety-provoking as relationships. And whether or not you're trying to navigate the new rules that come with an open office space, your relationship with your manager, or figuring out the whole work-life balance thing. I mean, seriously, when do you turn off your email at night? And since I'm at work recording an episode about work, when I asked to choose what editor would join me in the studio today, I thought there was no better person than my own manager, managing editor of Bustle, Amanda Chan. Hey, Amanda. Hey, Jada. I'm so glad that you're joining me here today. Thanks for having me. Of course. So first off, I know most of our listeners don't get to work in media. So what actually goes into your day as being managing editor of Bustle? Well, um, that is a very good question. I feel like I do a different thing every single day when I come into work, which is exciting. Um, I spend a lot of time in Slack, uh, hanging out with all of our editors, um, trying to figure out what headlines we want to do, what angles for stories are the right angles to do for Bustle. Um, Also doing top reads on stories, making sure we reach out to the right people, and obviously just like being there for all the different teams with anything that they need. And so each week in the pod, we play a 30-second game with our editors, and this week we're tailoring it just for you. Oh, boy. (laughs) Don't worry. You've got this. I want you to go through all your previous jobs, starting from the very, very first one in 30 seconds. Okay. Bring it on. Ready? Yes. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Um, Okay. So my very first job was to be a piano teacher. Um, So I had two students, and they came over um, once a week, and I would teach them piano lessons. So that's my first job. Um, From there... It's all kind of a blur, but uh, I worked in newspapers in college, so I worked at the Aotuki Fiddles News. I worked at the Arizona Republic. I worked at McMurray, which was a custom publishing company. And then I worked uh, internships, so that I got paid for, so that counts, right? That's a job. So I worked at InStyle. Um, I was at the Charlotte Observer. Is that 30 seconds? Are you serious? Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah. I was an intern, and then apparently I came to be the manager of a bustle, so that's cool. Epic rise. <laughs> Epic rise. I wouldn't expect anything less. <laughs> So, okay, so I definitely love the fact that your first job involved teaching piano. Yes. My first job was completely different. I was working at a bakery, but I only lasted for one day because I couldn't, like, do the string on the boxes, like, perfectly. (laughs) And, like, I had, like, such an issue with it, and I was feeling so, like— not good at it. So then... Did they teach you how to do it? I feel like they should teach you and then you would know, Yeah, there was like a little training and like everyone else figured it out but me. And so I just told my mom I didn't want to go back anymore. (laughs) And so I ended up working at her store. So my... Yes, I had like a 24-hour... No, maybe a four-hour stint at a bakery. So that was actually interesting. (laughs) 
So we have a really great interview with this episode that I'm so excited about with Allison Green from Ask a Manager. And we really talk about the differences between the way things worked in the workplace 10 years ago as opposed to the way they are now. Um, And that, for example, unlimited vacation days, working in in an open environment, being able to work from home is new for a lot of people. So how has the industry and the workplace changed since your days as an intern versus now in 2018? Well, like you said, like there's a lot more capabilities and uh, I feel like a lot of offices have probably built in the capability to work from home or to be more flexible with things like that, which is nice. And then I would also say that maybe my answer has more to do with my perception of how things were that, you know, 10 years ago than they are now. I think when you're first starting out in any kind of job, you think that everyone is really inaccessible and you think that, oh, I have to like stay in my lane and I shouldn't speak up and, you know, I have to like kind of put my head down or whatnot. And I don't know if it's because of social media or because of the ease of like sending an email and how, you know, quick and easy that is. But I would say like these days, I feel like I get a lot of emails and reach out on Twitter and, you know, whatnot from people that are just starting out in their careers or even college students just asking for advice or like, hey, is, you know, can you give me feedback on this pitch or something like that? And like, I'm always happy to do that. Like, and I think that most people are happy to do that too. That's something that I guess a misconception that I had, like, you know, back when I was starting out of like, that I couldn't do that or that it was scary to do that or that people would, you know, say no or be mean to me or something. And and most people aren't like that. Yeah, I think that there is a there's less of a line if you're like game to reach out. Yeah, you know, respectfully. Exactly, respectfully. Like as long as it's not coming from a place of like, please, you know, not even please, just reply. You know, yeah. As long as you know it's coming from Give a place. Give me of- a job because I also get those. <laughs> I also don't get, get those too. <laughs> yeah. Emails do not get answered. Great. <laughs> um, but in general, I think most people are happy to help out other people who are just genuinely curious or wanting advice or like you know trust your judgment or like hey you know I want to be this kind of reporter this kind of editor like you are or like you were in you know for your last jobs um and we're generally pretty happy to to help at least you know reply back to an email yeah a hundred percent feel that I think for me one of the things that's changed is like chatting over slack so before you know you'd have to walk over to someone and like ask them a question or like dare I say pick up a phone in the office like with the extensions <laughs> the phones have definitely changed oh my goodness we don't even have phones here no, technically we, we use don't. our computers to be phones yeah. if, we, if we need to. Um, yeah, that that is definitely different from 10 years ago. This is true. <laughs> exactly. So I know for me, one of my big mantras with Slack is to make sure like if, if there's something that I wouldn't say out loud to someone, I don't say it in Slack just like as my own precaution. Um, but what are some of your tips for newbies who are coming into an office where there's like Slack and people are like sharing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's always, that's always tricky. I mean, I kind of follow the same um, role as you do, Jada, like, you know, it's still work. (laughs) So anything that you type in there, it's as if you said it out loud at work because you are basically saying it out loud at work. In fact, it's probably more permanent than saying it out loud at work because it's recorded on your computer. So um, anything that you would be embarrassed about or wouldn't want, you know, your boss to hear or your HR manager to hear probably shouldn't be writing it down in email or in Slack. But that being said, like, you know, Slack is also, I think, at least for us at Bustle, hopefully you can attest that to Jada is a way to be friendly with your coworkers yeah. and to share like funny dog pictures and, you know, links and whatnot. So it's also, you know, great for, I think, building that community in the newsroom. Um, and then also, obviously, it's like 
really efficient for work, <laughs> which is great. Um, Absolutely. You can uh, share docs in there. Yeah. Oh, my God. I didn't even need email. Yeah. We used, gosh, my gosh, I think it was called Lotus Notes um, back when I was in newspapers. And it was like basically like AIM where it was just like you could only chat with one person mm-hmm. at a time. And it was just like the little like window on the screen. And even that, I remember being like, oh, this is a great way to speed up communication. And now you've got Slack and it's even better. But <laughs> So much better. Yeah. So I think our first interview with Allison Green is definitely going to tackle some of our work worries and will hopefully help with our listeners as well. So before I jump into my chat with Allison, I'd like to remind the listeners out there that the questions I'm asking are founded on my experience as someone who works in digital media. I realize that there are so many industries and there are so many positions where you're not able to work from home or have some of the flexibility that we are fortunate to have in the creative field, but there are also a lot of universal themes. So without further ado, let's get into our interview with Allison. So for those who are unfamiliar with your work, can you introduce us to what you do and what your advice would be? Absolutely. I am Allison Green. I write the website Ask a Manager and am the author of the book by the same name. And Ask a Manager is a workplace advice column. So I answer questions on everything from what to do if you're allergic to your boss's perfume to what to do if you drink too much at the company party and everything in between. So I'm curious, what in your background has equipped you to give such great advice? I've made a ton of mistakes and then dwelled on them obsessively and and tried to learn lessons from them. That's the real answer. The sort of official answer is that I managed a nonprofit for many years, and I was a manager at different jobs before that. And when I started Ask a Manager, at the time I was working as the chief of staff for a nonprofit lobbying organization here in Washington, and I kept seeing both employees and job seekers make decisions for themselves that I could see were not going to get them the outcomes that they wanted. And I thought, you know, they're doing this thing that's not in their best interest because they don't have insight into how their manager, or in some cases, their job interviewer is thinking. And I thought it would be so useful for people to have a place where they could go and hear, okay, when you say this, here is how it's coming across to your manager. Or when your manager says this, here's what she really means. So you've been writing for many years and undoubtedly you've seen a lot of changes. What are some of the biggest changes that you've seen throughout your career? You know, one thing that has changed in a big way is job searching. When I started Ask a Manager, it was 2007. So it was a year before the recession. And so as soon as the recession hit, my mail just filled up with people who were in really difficult, desperate situations, especially people who graduated around then and who weren't able to get work at all. And... While lots of those people have not caught up, I think the good news is my mail in the last couple of years has felt pretty different. I think the job market really has turned around, not for everyone, certainly, which is still a huge problem, but for a lot of people. One other thing I think, the way to job search has really changed, and a lot of campus career centers and parents are giving out this terrible, outdated job search advice because people are still hearing from their parents like, It's really attractive to employers if you're persistent, so you should call every few days or you should show up in person and announce that you're there to schedule an interview. Or there's like this idea of gumption when in reality, most employers are going to be really turned off by that and it's going to hurt you 
more than it will help. And honestly, I'm not sure that it ever helped, but it does seem to be really outdated advice that for some reason is still circulating. So Allison, we are so excited that you're here. And since we only have you for a limited time, we want to ask you as many questions as possible. So talking in an open office space, yes or no? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I get so many complaints about this. I think it's a balancing act. On one hand, you have to really be cognizant of the people who are around you. But on the other hand, often doing work requires you to speak. So it probably can't be like a library. There's no good answer to that because open workspaces just sort of suck. Yeah, pretty much. That's my opinion on this. Um, Next one. I've been promoted to a management role and now I'm managing all of my work friends. So hard. You've got to accept that the friendships are going to have to change because first and foremost, you are their boss. You're responsible for evaluating their work, passing judgment on their work, um, making decisions about raises and promotions, potentially might need to fire or lay someone off. So the price of becoming the boss is you. those friendships can't stay the same. Very true. I have been there before. Um, So you talked about this next one in your New York Times Smarter Living section. What's your quick word on crying in the office? (laughs) Try not to do it, but if it does happen, it's not a disaster. Lots of people cry at work. Ideally, it's going to be like one-on-one with someone, not like a huge meeting. But you know, it happens. You're human. The biggest thing is to make sure that the person you cry in front of does not walk away with the belief that you can't handle the stress of the job or that you can't handle feedback. So it's helpful to say something like, I'm sorry, I'm having a strong reaction, but I really do want to hear what you're saying. You know, in this new job climate, there's a lot of opportunity where you can get in a company as a freelancer over becoming a full-time employee. Is there any advice that you would give for someone who's kind of in like a permalance freelance position that wants to shift over to that full-time slot? Yeah, most importantly, speak up and make sure your manager knows. I think a lot of times people assume, oh, of course my manager knows because why wouldn't I want to move into a permanent full-time slot? But on the other side, it's not always obvious. Your manager might think that you're very happy freelancing, you have more freedom, you have other clients, or maybe they just are busy and they haven't stopped to think, oh, of course she would want a more secure job. So speak up, talk to your manager and let them know that that's something that you're interested in. And don't just do it once. I don't mean bring it up weekly because that would be annoying, but <laughs> like every like six to eight months, there's nothing wrong with checking in. The one policy that my parents will never understand Working from home. Yes. I love working from home. (laughs) Um, I think there's two key things. One is to know yourself and be honest with yourself. If you are someone who is just going to play with the cat and watch YouTube all day long, you should not be working (laughs) from home. And then for everyone who can work from home productively, be really, really accessible, like maybe more accessible than you would even be when you're in the office. Answer your phone, return uh, emails quickly, make sure that no one can start thinking, hmm, is she even around? Yes. Be available on Slack (laughs) when you are working from home. Yes. What do you do when you want to work for the same company, but you want to move departments? Different companies handle this differently. Some will not let you even apply without your manager's sign-off. So you need to know how your company handles it. But if you don't need your manager's sign-off immediately, you will probably need it at some point during the the process. So you want to prepare for how you're going to talk to your boss about that. Okay. What do you do when you share a G-chat with the wrong person 
And that chat is actually something shady about said person. Yes, that's <laughs> very awkward. I think the best thing to do is to just to talk about it head on. Don't try to pretend like it didn't happen. It's going to be tense and weird. I would walk over to them in person if you share physical space and say, hey, I'm really mortified. That obviously wasn't meant for you. And I apologize. And if the thing that you were trash talking them about is a work problem, now you have kind of forced your own hand. Like at this point, you have to actually say, let me explain what I was concerned about. So just being an adult about it. I like yes. that. Um, this one is definitely one that I could relate to. Adjusting to a new workplace as an introvert. Yes. I think pick a couple of people who seem really friendly and and talk to them. If there's someone in the office who seems like the office social planner, talk to that person and they may take you under their wing and introduce you around and show up at things. Even if normally you're not going to show up at happy hour or potluck, for the first couple of months, show up and that will help you settle in. What are your thoughts on sharing your mental health struggles with your boss? Uh, we should be able to treat this like any other medical issue. Unfortunately, there is still a lot of stigma, and I have heard from so many people who thought that their boss was open to hearing about mental health issues, and then it came back to hurt them in some way. So I would say err on the side of privacy. However, you can talk about it as a medical issue because it is a medical issue. So if you have a regular appointment with your therapist that you need time off for, you don't need to say it's therapy. You can say, I have a standing medical appointment. Um, and actually, you know, even if it weren't mental health, if it were some other kind of medical issue, you don't need to share details about that either. We can just say health issues for all of this. How do you bounce back the day after a really bad holiday party experience? Like if you like if got you obviously totally drunk. got super drunk at the holiday party, like what yeah. do you do? Oh. I you I think you're better off addressing it head on, particularly to your boss. Say, I'm really embarrassed. I know that I drank too much last night. I'm going to make sure that that never happens again at a work event. Got it. So pretty much throughout all of our rapid fire, it really comes down to just being honest and upfront. Yeah, I think half the letters, if not more, that I receive could be solved by people just being direct. So let's say that you get off to a really bad, awkward social footing at your job. Your work performance is fine, but you're just not really gelling the way that you should be. Is there any way that you can recover from that? Um, oh, that's really hard. We like to say that like, oh, it shouldn't matter that much and you're just there to do the work. But that can be really isolating and emotionally difficult, I think. Um, I think I would say it comes down to how much it's bothering you. Like if you feel like you're able to kind of let it roll off you, then great. But if it is really bothering you, there is no shame in deciding that this is not the job for you and you're going to go somewhere else. And actually one caveat I would put on the earlier part of my answer, even if you can let it roll off your back and it doesn't bug you that much, I would do some thinking about whether or not it's likely to affect your professional advancement there long term. Like you might not really care that you're not fitting in socially, but if it means that it's going to impact what assignments you get or what promotions you can get, then it might not be the, like the most comfortable home for you in the long term. I think sometimes people get in a situation like that and they feel obligated to make it work. Um, and they'll feel like they failed or they're weak if they just give up. But I think there's real strength in looking around and saying, this is not pleasant and this is not how I want to spend 40 hours or more a week and I'm going to go find something else. So let's say you pick up a career advice book that's written in the 90s or maybe even the early aughts. What is it not telling you that you absolutely need to know in 2018? 
Oh, that's such a great question. You know, it's interesting. I do think that there are people in some fields who still are having a more traditional work experience, but certainly in fields like media, for example, it's just wildly different than 15 years ago. Um, so freelancing and gig work, and certainly the idea that you'll get a job and you'll stay there for 10 or 15 years. Um, and if, if you do anything less, then you're going to be labeled a job hopper. That has really died. I think that today in many fields, you need to be prepared to really think of yourself as the manager of your own career in a way that you didn't used to need to do. It's not bad for anyone to do this ever, really. I mean, it was always probably a good idea. But today in particular, you can't rely on just getting a job and you stay there for three years and then you apply for your next one and that's going to be another three-year full-time job. It might go like that, but it might look very different. So I think really keeping an open mind and not having preconceived notions about what your career is going to look like will benefit you. So Allison, you have been incredible. There's so much that I just want to replay and make sure that I'm doing correctly or giving your advice to someone who needs it. How can our listeners stay connected to you? My website is askamanager.org, and my book is Ask a Manager, How to Navigate Clueless Colleagues, Lunch-Stealing Bosses, and the Rest of Your Life at Work. <laughs> and I'm on Twitter at Ask a Manager. Awesome. Thank you so much, Allison. It has been a total pleasure, and I feel like our lives are all going to be the better with your advice. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So something that definitely stood out to me while talking with Allison was just navigating the sometimes awkwardness of going from an associate to a manager. So what was your first management role like? What was that transition like for you? Uh, so my first management role was actually probably at the student newspaper at Arizona State. I was the editor-in-chief there, so I um, was working with a bunch of friends, and we were, you know, all working in that together on in the trenches late at night every night. Um, but, you know, since I graduated, uh, it would probably be at HuffPost when I was leading the Healthy Living team. Um, and that was a great experience. I loved I loved our team. We actually were all um, on the same team for several years. And so I knew uh, all the editors pretty well. And um, yeah, it was it was a nice experience. And uh, that was the first time I, I managed a few people. Yeah, I had a similar experience as well. Um, in my first management role, I was working at a hip hop site and we were all just like 
prior to me being promoted, we were just all kind of in the trenches reviewing these albums and like fighting over what should get four stars or three stars or whatever. And then moving into the manager role where I think for me, the way that I dealt with having this quote unquote authority was figuring out ways that I could support them. So then it ended up making it a little bit more seamless versus like me being on a perch, which is just not my steez anyway. Exactly. Yeah. I I was going to say like management for me is not about like telling people what to do. It's more of like figuring out how they can do what they need to do. And it's your job to figure out the best way for them to be able to to work unencumbered, essentially. <laughs> Absolutely. And I feel like we literally do that every day. Like, we're always sitting and figuring out, like, the ways that we can support, like, whether it be, like, from a morale standpoint, a work standpoint. So I think one of the things that we probably would want our reports to know is that at the end of the day, managers are still people with their own sets of worries and insecurities, and they may just be dealing with things in a way that is not visible to their reports. Yeah. I mean, when you're managing a team or, you know, set of responsibilities or whatever it is that you're managing, it's just a different role, right? It's just a different set of responsibilities. And, and like, we are still the same people, <laughs> you know, with or without that role. I'm still Amanda. You're still Jada. And, you know, we still come with this, our own sets of, like you said, insecurities or, you know, challenges that we face or strengths. And, um, you know, those obviously it's who we are as people. So we're still people too. We're people too. We haven't changed. I always say that I'm the same person since I was five because I legit feel that way. (laughs) And that literally goes straight to the top. So we talked to Bustle's editor-in-chief, our very own Kate Ward, and she demonstrates that even at the very top, we still face the same desires to be part of the group. Like she literally just wants to sit with us. I am Kate Ward, the editor-in-chief of Bustle Digital Group. I started work at Bustle five years ago in 2013, before the site had even launched. So it was super cozy back in the day. We started in a townhouse in Williamsburg, which was really fun and inspiring in so many different ways. You also felt like you were sitting amongst friends, being able to plan out your content day to day and work with one another in a way that was physically uh, and emotionally close at the same time. Now we're a company of over 200 people. We have three floors in one building and employees scattered throughout the country, which is a great indication of our success, which is really cool. But at the same time, I do sort of miss those days of being able to sit next to everybody, get inspiration, talk to everyone every day. And now, you know, I do have an office and uh, it was something that I actually did not want until one of my coworkers said that, you know, it'd be good to do it just for meetings. But I do miss being out on the floor. So I do try to get out there every once in a while to be able to kind of chat with people and see what they're up to, but hopefully not annoy them at the same time. So I'm always trying to be aware of like, at what point am I too in people's faces versus like they just want to be left alone. I never want it to feel like that I'm better than anyone because I have a big space while they have to share a desk. And the idea that I can intimidate anybody is totally ridiculous to me. You know, I'm kind of like a bear and that I'm kind of more scared of you than you should be of me, you know? So, but really I think the hardest thing was having this office. And there'd be times that I would sometimes sit in here and feel really lonely and feel like I have nobody to talk to. And you know, what's happening out on the floor? People are laughing, like I miss being part of that. It has been different having an office space. As you develop layers of management, people go to their manager for everything. There's no way they're going to walk into the office and talk to you because, you know, I do know that unfortunately, if all 200 employees came to my office every day, then I wouldn't be able to get anything else done. 
but yeah, no, I, I think it's just an indication of getting bigger and it's something that we have to deal with and we always have to try to improve. Previously in places I used to work, the idea of talking to my boss's boss, little and my boss's 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 boss uh, was just completely unheard of. And I knew that they would never know my name, but you know, I know everyone in editorial and that's definitely not the case at other places that I've worked. And so I do think that that makes us unique. I want people to bring their ideas up and it's that feeling of, uh, you know, anybody should feel like they can come into my doors open at all times. But, you know, I know that not everybody always feels comfortable doing that, but the more that people stay silent and sit where they are and think that that's their place, then I think the worse off we are as a company. I feel a bigger responsibility now. I think back in 2013, we kind of said, let's try this thing. And if it fails, it fails. And, you know, hopefully it goes well. And we were all in it together. And now I, you know, that we've become a bigger company with more brands and more responsibilities and women with stake in the company. The idea that anybody could be unhappy or uncomfortable in any way would totally tear me up inside. And even when I don't hear anything from people, it still worries me. I still get up. I mean, I told you before we started talking, I was up at two in the morning this morning, just getting in my head about everything. And that doesn't really go away. So I'm still trying to figure out how to, that, that wake up call that keeps you up and you can't really fall back asleep and your mind goes a million different places. And then you worry about everybody around you. That's what I'm trying to solve for so I can get more sleep. I mean, as you grow, your stresses become bigger. So Kate being up in the middle of the night worrying about work speaks directly to my soul. And it's a great place to shift the conversation to boundaries between work life and life life. So how have boundaries and lines between work and play blurred over your careers? Like I know for me, um, when I first started, I felt like I almost didn't deserve to have any off time or like there was also that like, Thing, like no days off, like everybody was like hashtagging and you're constantly working because I constantly felt like I had to like prove myself to the point where I was like completely burning out. Do you think that things have gotten worse since then? Or do you think that you've kind of learned work life? Because I even feel like the idea of work-life balance is pretty new. Like I've never heard of mindfulness and all of these new ideas until maybe like two or three years ago. Yeah, I mean, I actually, to be honest, I think it kind of depends too on like where you are in your life and what exactly you are wanting to do, right? Like I remember at HuffPost, for instance, I would work on the weekends all the time. I'd write stories in the middle of the night because something would break and I'll be like, oh my gosh, that's the health news angle. I'm going to write it up. But I was excited to do it. And it wasn't, it didn't feel like work because it just felt like I was getting to really own my beat and like do a good job at work. So there's that version, right? Which, okay, cool. Do it a bit, but don't do it all the time. You know, obviously going back to that whole uh, not wanting to burn yourself out thing. Uh, But then there's also, you know, like in my role now, for instance, I purposely choose not to wear my Apple watch on the weekends. And it's not because of, you know, any nefarious reason or anything. It's just because I know that I get calendar updates on my watch and I get Slack updates and whatnot. And you know what? It's my weekend. So I'm going to leave the watch at home. And if I need to check in at work, I will take out my phone or I'll take out my computer. And it's a little bit more intentional, but not having it kind of ping me without my permission or without my, you know, <laughs> uh, wanting it to. So so that's a, like a small step that I take now, for instance. So true. And I, th- I love the point that you made about like being at HuffPo and there being a story that you just felt 
felt really passionate about working on. I feel like I'm still in that same place just because like even though I'm a manager, I'm a writer first and I just love writing. And if there's an issue or an angle or something that I feel I can take on things, I'm constantly like, oh, I can write that up on Saturday. And sometimes I do, but I try to kind of pick my battles a little bit more because I can be passionate about anything and I'm going to want to write about anything. I kind of say like, okay, is there is there a writer out there who can express this, who can run with this angle? Is this something that only I can really speak to or is this going to like keep me up at night and I have to like get my thoughts out? So kind of like picking those, those battles. But I think that there is some good and kind of keeping that drive because it just shows that you love what you do. But you just got to reel it in a little. Exactly. Or, or at least figuring out how it applies to your current role. It's not a matter of like working less or working less hard. It's just working differently, I think. Absolutely. And it goes back to that idea of support. And so one of our favorite managers, our deputy lifestyle editor, Catherine Catalia, admits that she's not the best at the whole work-life balance thing. I mean, who is? She spoke with Marley Grace, who wrote a book called How to Not Always Be Working, a toolkit for creativity and radical self-care. And I feel so seen. I feel like I need this book in my life. I need this interview in my life. So here's Marley and Catherine. So, Marley, the reason why I was assigned to interview you about your book, How to Not Always Be Working, is because I literally work all the time, and it was <laughs> advised that I seek out some help here. Um, so I'm so excited to talk to you about this. I feel like my biggest problem is that I just kind of like working, and I like feeling mm. like I'm always doing something and crossing things off my to-do list. It just feels productive. And then when I'm not crossing things off my to-do list, I just kind of feel like I'm wasting my time, even though that time is, you know, valuable to sort of recharge and, and do all of that. So I could definitely, definitely use your help. You know, it's funny. My first thought listening to you, I was like, maybe you don't need the book. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you're fine. You know, if you love your work and you love working, you should keep doing it. Like if we were in a one-on-one -on -one session, I would ask what are the parts of your life that do feel depleted and are they affected by your need to cross things off the to-do list? So sometimes it's about like looking at it sort of backwards. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I'm definitely one of those people who is constantly on their phone to the point where it's annoying to those around me. Mm -hmm. uh, so yes. that is something that I am actively trying to sort of rein in a little bit, but... Uh, yeah, and it's also one of those things where you cross all those things off your to-do list, and then instead of feeling accomplished, sometimes I just feel really, really tired. And I'm like, how mm. valuable was, mm -hmm. you know, that last 12 hours anyway? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's, uh, I mean, that's what I'm mostly thinking about is like, what is what is burnout? And I think burnout looks really different for everyone. And yeah, I can have days where I work all day and I'm enjoying it. But if my like, um, future pace is off, like if I can't see like, okay, but tomorrow, you know, I committed to, to being there for a friend or like going on a hike with someone. And so then I sometimes it's like another working backwards technique where I'm like, well, I could work for like 12 hours today <laughs> and I would probably feel great, but how am I gonna, what do I need to do today to sort of set me up for tomorrow? That's another sort of nugget of checking in for me. That's important. So you spend a lot of time in your book going into what is work versus what is not work. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really, really <laughs> interesting and something that a lot of people don't often think about. Uh, can you break that down for us? I was talking to someone the other day and this was like 
maybe isn't in the book, but it's sort of like a point of clarity that I've learned since writing it is like the same task can both be work and not work. The gray space came from, I think, the sort of digital age that we live in. And I think myself and many other creative entrepreneurs or artists who are engaging in social media were or are starting to find that so much of our business often includes the integration of our personal lives and selves, or just for me, the the way that I write, the way that I speak to people is very personal. And so I think that's where the gray area can be a little confusing to me. And one way that's been helpful to me is keeping things private. Like maybe I'm like hanging out with a friend who sometimes I like tag on social media because they're my friend or because they're a collaborator or we have similar work. And I think it's also healthy to be like, I don't have to share this moment with everyone right now because it might start to look like work or feel like work, even if it's just like precious social time. Are you an advocate for like social media detoxes and and that kind of thing where people just get rid of their phones for a day? I like self-published a little essay this year about specifically about how Instagram gave me a beautiful career and true love and best friends and made me want to die at the same time. It's a dramatic title, but it's just the importance of um, turning the phone off. I don't necessarily have my own like specific detox practices, but deleting it off your phone, hiding the, hiding the app. These apps are built to feel like slot machines and they're built to, to trigger like little dopamine sensors in our brain. So it's not, it's not a mistake that we feel like we can't put them down, which then makes us obsessed with work, which then makes us stupider at our work because our brains are getting fried by the apps that are helping us with our work. So yeah, there's many days that I'm like, if I could just get rid of this forever, what a gift. <laughs> but, um, you know, I also find that as, you know, a queer person, as a sober person, I hold a lot of different identities that having such a public internet platform has, I can see the impact it makes on other people. That's amazing and really beneficial, but then it's, you know, at what cost to my own mental health is another question I have to ask myself. Yeah. I feel like that's a question a lot of people probably struggle with. Mm -hmm. At one point in your book, you suggest literally putting your phone in a box for a couple of hours and not looking (laughs) at it, which to me just seemed like brilliant. (laughs) Does that actually work? That's an idea borrowed from this amazing illustrator and publisher, Caroline Paquita, who also deals with sort of addiction and boundaries. If the box works, great. Like I live in a one room cabin, so I don't necessarily have like a separation between bedroom, living room. So sometimes I literally like turn it off and walk to the driveway and put it in my car. I kind of love it. I don't know. I'm going to try it out, see what happens. Great. Can't wait to hear how it goes. (laughs) Uh, One thing that I struggle with, and I'm sure that probably a lot of people struggle with as well, especially as it relates to work, is that I have an extremely hard time saying no to people. Uh, 
to pretty much anything. Mm -hmm. Like literally, if you ask me to do something, I will probably say yes, even if I don't necessarily have the time or the resources or whatever it may be. Yeah. Do you have any sort of advice just for all of us on what we can do better to, you know, better protect our time? Yeah, you know, I literally have the word yes tattooed on my hand like I'm just staring at it right now so I'm like yeah I know I know the struggle and I've joked that I should really get no tattooed on the other hand the reason I have yes tattooed on my hand and then it faces me is that I think that sometimes the way if you have a hard time saying no instead of trying to teach yourself how to say no to me it's about saying yes to myself so Instead of feeling like you're saying no to them, like do a quick little mental scan of like, where do I need to say yes to myself right now? Do I need to watch Netflix and eat popcorn alone tonight? Like, do I need to go away for the weekend? Like, do like what do I have my own work to do? Do I have my own creative project I want to say yes to? Like sometimes when we say yes to everything, we don't leave the space for the correct things that are actually in alignment to come to us that I feel like hits home. <laughs> no's can be yeses. Nice. I like it. Awesome. No's can be yeses. <laughs> yes. Yes. Very cool. Yay. Thank you so much, Marley. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for having me. That was fun. And so with all of that great advice, I think it's time to go work, Amanda. All right. Let's go to work. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. It's been amazing. Of course. Thanks for having me. Of course. So that's it for our show, guys. The Bustle Huddle is produced by Anna Parsons, Michaela Heck, and Julia Shu, with help and love from Roseanne Salvatore. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. And definitely leave us reviews on iTunes. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can reach us the old-fashioned way at huddle at bustle.com. I'm your host, Jada Gomez, and I will see you next week. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.